You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Starlin, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. You're listening to Master of Kung Fu, Volume 1, Weapon of the Soul, covering a period of Master of Kung Fu from 1973 to 1975. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your co-host for the Master of Kung Fu, Jason Schaff. Right on. This is our first episode of Master of Kung Fu. Jason, can you tell me what issues we are going to be covering in this episode? Okay, so we're going to be starting off with Marvel Special Edition, which was kind of this this title that had had a lot of uh, Nick Fury reprints or Nick Fury original stories. But at issue 15, it turned into a Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu. And two issues later, it will pick up as Master of Kung Fu, starting with issue 17. So in other words, Marvel Special Edition goes by the wayside, and, we, and Shang-Chi gets his own title. We're going to be covering issue 17 of Master of Kung Fu all the way up to issue 28 of Master of Kung Fu. Along the way, we're going to be dipping our toes into the four giant-sized Master of Kung Fu issues, a giant-sized Spider-Man number two issue, and Iron Man Annual 4. Could be kind of playing around in there. This is a title that I think I've heard so many people say, I've never read that before. And then when they do read it, they're like, why did I wait so long to read this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Um, so I always like to start off by asking what your relationship to the book was, if you had one, coming into reading the epic. Okay, this is one of those books where I was like, I've never read that before. Why did I wait so long to read this? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have never, I had never touched this before. I'd only generally known of Master of Kung Fu. Um, I've read some Shang-Chi appearances in like Avengers and some modern, modern comics, but really not knowing very much of the history of this character at all. Right. So I'm similar to you. I was very dismissive of this when I was a kid uh, collecting comics in the 80s and then a little bit into the 90s because I was all about the superheroes. Right, of course. And you know, this list looked like something else. Um, I would note the flashy covers, but I never sunk my teeth into it. But when you start making friends in the community, the comic collecting community, I started hearing the rumors about how this was a spectacular uh, comic title, and I completely missed out. Eventually, I got around to reading them, you know, because back in the 90s and through thousands, you could collect these by just going to the dime bins, quarter bins, dollar bins, and there'd be plenty of them. Yeah. And in doing so, what I realized is the thing that is really spectacular about this is you have some of the greatest art teams uh, working on this. 
starting off, you get Jim Starling. Everybody loves Jim Starling. He doesn't last long. We'll right. talk a little bit about his departure. Yep. Um, but then you get Paul Gulacy. And I never heard about Paul Gulacy. I know he did some Batman stuff, but I was never really much of a DC guy anyway. However, when we start diving into this, oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. What he does with some of these panels. Oh, yeah. um, later on, we're going to get Mike Zeck. And uh, the tragic case of Gene Day towards the back end, who is one of those amazing artists that uh, whose work was just simply cut short by um, by his health issues. He dies very young and leaves us with some of the most moody and spectacular layouts ever to be put on a comic page, at least in my opinion. Well, as far as this podcast is concerned, that that episode is going to probably be years down the road. Yeah. Because as <laughs> yeah. of right now, they've only re- they've only released two epic collections worth of Master of Kung Fu. And if they come out in a yearly pace, um, getting to the, the, the last few volumes is probably going to be, I don't know, five years down the road. <laughs> but we have to imagine that it might come out sooner rather than later, given that there's a movie in the works. I hope so. I just don't know Marvel's marketing strategies. Uh, I know that like two Black Widow volumes come out this year, probably mm-hmm. in support of the movie. But does the does the comic book community will they support two volumes of Master of Kung Fu in the same year? Uh, I don't know. Hope so. <laughs> I, I hope so too. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah. and, and I would especially hope that they have a plan. Like I don't know how long the license with the Sax Romer estate is with Marvel, mm-hmm. but I would hope that they have it long enough. Then they've projected how long that they're going to need to re- release all of these Master of Kung Fu epic collections in trade. Uh, to to fit the licensing window. Yeah, that's going to be an issue certainly for them. And that's the reason why we didn't have reprints for so long is because of the deal with the Max Romer estate had yeah. lapsed. So why don't we get a little bit into the, the history of, of this comic and how it came to be just so that we can start off uh, letting people know a little bit about that. Sure thing. So really this is the brainchild of, uh, of Jim Starling, Englehart, and uh, Al Milgram. And there's going to be a funny kind of callback to that as we get into this. And it's, essentially these guys would go to these midnight cinemas uh, showings of the Shaw Brother type kung fu films that were being shown in New York City. And they fell in love with it and so decided, well, why don't we kind of come up with our own? And there was a big it was in the zeitgeist at the time. There was a lot of attention and kind of in the underground, it seems more than an overt attention towards these kung fu films. Um, Other people are going to reference how it impacted them, most famously the Wu-Tang Clan. Um, and they'll talk about in their in their music about how those Shaw Brother films really kind of gave voice to them. So they came up with the idea of of kind of working out some kind of kung fu book. We already had. I think this predates Iron Fist, but the Romer kind of deal was another thing coming into it, and that is Max Romer is the brainchild of the Fu Manchu series of novels that came out starting out in 1913, I think, and carrying on up through the 1930s. Right. Those are problematic if you go back to read some of that because they fit really within the um, yellow terror or yellow scare sort of uh, genre of the time, a fear of Asian stuff. And Fu Manchu kind of embodies a whole lot, a whole load of that. In the comic book... Fu Manchu is going to evolve 
into something a little bit better of better representation um, than what he was originally manifested at. But again, maybe we'll kind of delve into that a little bit more as it kind of comes along. Right. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Doug Mensch, who's going to be the main writer on this book for about 110 issues, almost the entire run, he's going to move the depiction of Fu Manchu away from its traditional uh, Sax Romer division to something much more of, I almost related him to like a Doctor Doom sort of figure, kind of mixing science and villainy uh, together comfortably. But essentially what he's going to do is move Fu Manchu away from being defined by his Asiatic background into something that is villainy independent of being Asian, which I think is kind of an important move that we'll see yeah. later on. I think he's always had kind of those Doctor Doom qualities to him. In the, in the novels, that's one of his big things is that he is a, a doctor, that he's an evil doctor, basically, that he, he experiments and has all these crazy things that he does. Um, what do they call him? It, uh, I can't remember. They they have a certain name for him. Not like not the Dark Doctor. Maybe I should look that up. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree. He definitely takes a different change. Um, I think part of the part of the thing is that the the movies also influence a lot of who do, who Fu Manchu is um, more than the even more than the books did. Like they they took the character of Fu Manchu and evolved the character to kind of how he's represented in in these early issues of the book here. Yeah. Are you familiar with the movies? I, you know, I, I'm not so familiar. I watched a, a couple of them when, just so I could have an idea of what mm -hmm. his character was like there. But man, they're, I don't, they're extremely dated. I didn't like them that much. <laughs> very, very dated. Especially if you go back and watch the Boris Karloff um, interpretation of Fu Manchu from the 1930s. And, right. Oof. You just, you, you gotta... Try to put yourself in the mindset of the time and understand yep. the time, but oh my goodness, to a modern audience, it's it's, it's not easy. It's yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we move on to something else, I have a clip of Jim Starlin talking about these early days, um, I, and just in general, I want to say that uh, th sprinkled throughout this episode. I'm going to have some clips from Doug Mensch. Fantastic. We'll see what he has to say. And then in the next episode, when we get around to doing volume two, I'll make sure I talk to Paul Gulesi about his work on this as well. So I just might intersperse some uh, some interview clips without any warning, just to let you know. Um, and I say that just because I haven't had a chance to... Uh, Doug Mensch is open to talking, but I haven't been able to, to schedule a time with him before this call. So I'm hoping to do that sometime this week before we get the episode out. Fantastic. Shang-Chi was something that Steve Englehart and I were big fans of the TV series Kung Fu that was running at the time, and we wanted to do a comic book adaptation of that. Unfortunately, that was owned by uh, Warner Brothers, who had no interest in doing that sort of thing, which owned BC. Uh, so we had our own character. Going along, uh, Stan had to Fu Manchu along the way <clears throat> sometime earlier. And uh, he said, well, we got to put Fu Manchu in the book. And I had never read a Fu Manchu book. It was only after I got done with the first issue that Larry Hama, uh, who worked at the continuity, uh, said, have you ever read any of those? And I said, no. And, he, and the next day, he produced a, uh, one of the Fu Manchu books and sat down over the next couple days and read it. And was horrified by what racist pieces of shit these things were. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm promoting this, and you know, so there's a couple of issues. I, I got off the book. I immediately started just doing layouts and told Roy I couldn't do, work on this thing, and he was cool about it. And so, you know, I full time until uh, I came to the end of my run. Wow. We had a lot of response when I asked for comments on on social media about this book. People Mm. had a lot to say about it. So I'm going to read some stuff here, some comments. Uh, Some of them are very long as well. Uh, Over on Twitter, someone who goes by the handle SJH says, It's a great book. Had me wanting more after I read it. I had to buy the omnibus books. And I guess that's the way to do it. Pretty well spent. Yep. Yeah. Because those are, the whole series is now collected in Omnibus. Uh, So if you do want to read the whole thing, it is actually available. Uh, On Facebook, Jason says, I've been reading comics for about 30 years, and for some unknown reason, I had never read any Master of Kung Fu. I blind bought this when it came out, the Epic Collection, and it blew my mind. At first, I was kicking myself for taking so long to discover it, but I decided to loom at the bright side and be happy that I can still discover new titles after all these years of reading. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, very true. My particular favorite period of Marvel is the 1970s, when they were doing so many of these experimental titles. And a lot of those I just never engaged with. And it means that as an adult now, I get to go back and engage with that material. And it never never fails to uh, pique my mood, catch my interest. Tomb of Dracula is another one for me. Yeah, Tomb of Dracula is fantastic. One that goes under the radar, but I quite liked, was the Living Mummy stuff that they did. Oh, okay, yeah. That's a really good title with, again, really great art that you would never have thought it. Sean says, I think this is the hidden gem of the Epic Collections. The world building is great. The Epic focuses on the father-son dynamic and what it means to be the son of the devil. Um, oh, that's, that's what it's called, the Devil Doctor. They call him the Devil Doctor. Mm. Sean says, I loved it. One constant you will see on this board is me recommending it at every chance. Sean is a smart person. Yep. <laughs> uh, David says, I'm reading this right now and up to issue 20. I've never read any of this before, and I'm loving it. The Starlin art is a bit cruder than his later work that I'm more familiar with, but it's still good. And same for the Galassi art, actually. But I know that his art gets much slicker as the series goes on. I do think that they should have included Master of Kung Fu stories from the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, even though they were in black and white, just for completeness, though. What do you think mm. about that? Have you read the Deadly Hands stuff? I have not, actually, read the Deadly Hands stuff. Um, so I can't comment on, about the quality of it. Um, I think it might have been, for me personally, it probably would have been jarring to see the black and white um, mixed in with this, the, 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 the hyper color of the epic stuff. But I think it, it might depend also on the quality of the writing or who's writing it. Uh, I know for the Tomb of Dracula trades, they, it, they add the black and white magazine pages there. And so you do have to flip flop between some color and black and white and color. And it's not too bad. And the thing that makes that one different is that the, the Dracula black and white stories take place in a different, completely different time and era, like a different century than the color stuff. So it's easier to separate that material in your mind. Mm. But it, it might be jarring with the black and white stuff. I'm not sure. But I think it would be cool just to see some Deadly Hands, just, just regular collections. I know they, they collected those in Omnibus as well as separate Omnibuses. There's a okay. lot of material there. Interesting. Ray says, I love Mensch's indelible storytelling for Shang-Chi. Very much a riff on the Kung Fu genre of the time, but he somehow makes it, makes it his own. Um, anyone who's read Moon Knight 
anyone who's read Moon Knight will recognize the poetic style of Mensch. I love how Shang-Chi is always uber calm and prepared. He kind of does it better than Black, Black Panther. His father in this collection is as mad as a hatter, and I love the fact how his, his sanctorium is located in the middle of New York City. Recently bought a hard copy after purchasing and read the collection digitally. Should be fun, a fun ride again. Mensch is fantastic, and one of the things I love about him is he doesn't overwrite, um, which some writers are tend to do. There'll be pages where the action dictates the, the movement, um, and he won't write anything into some of those panels, uh, which kind of emphasizes just the athleticism, the kung fu action, if you will. Uh, I think that's a, a real good quality of his. Mensch's writing is definitely the the reason why these stories are so interesting. And I find myself uh, oftentimes with comics from this era or before not wanting to read any of the narration boxes because mm-hmm. they're maybe unnecessary or they totally bog down the flow of the story. But the way Mensch has done this by making the internal monologue of Shang-Chi, it it works so well. It's not a chore to read all of this stuff. It it flows so nicely. Absolutely agree. Uh, Okay, let's see here. Ivan says, first I knew about Master of Kung Fu was in Action Force Weekly number 17 from Marvel UK in a story which we we saw uh, Quick Kick learn to fight from Shang-Chi. And then numbers 18 to 29, they ran 29 to 31, which I enjoyed so much. Um, when I find a copy of Master Kung Fu, I will pick it up. And that's cool, too, to know that this even struck a chord with people on a different continent. I never know how American comics will do in a, in a market that's, you know, not used to American content. Yeah, this is a, when I lived in Europe, it was always striking to me when I bumped into people who were Marvel fans when they grew up like I was. Because how they consumed it was somewhat different. They'd have to get their books at book fairs as opposed to comic book stores or spinner racks, and uh, they were collected differently. So it's interesting to hear how they would uh, come across Master of Kung Fu, such a niche book. And, and just the style of it is so completely different than European comics. If anyone's read Tintin or Asterix, like, you know how European yeah. comics read and how they flow. Like There's a very certain style, and it's not American. Uh, and then when you put in something very, very specific like this Kung Fu stuff, which was taking America by storm, I don't know. I, I have no idea, actually, if it was taking Europe by storm at the same time. I'd be very interested to hear what if it had any market penetration in Asian markets, um, the Japanese kids, for example. Right. This. I doubt Chinese kids with the communism um, and the Cold War being what it was. But still, it might have been interesting. Pierce says, I loved it. It has a very cinematic feel, like a series of spy movies. Fu Manchu is a terrific villain, brilliant, evil, and always five steps ahead of the good guys. He has so much presence, and there's a sense of him even in stories where he doesn't appear. I love seeing Shang-Chi struggle to get out of Fu Manchu's shadow and figure out who he is, and now that he knows, most of what he learned growing up was warped. So good. Um, But just so that it's not all gushing praise, I'll raise a few complaints. One is that as a strong silent type, Shang-Chi sometimes gets a bit overshadowed by the support characters. Also, I would like to see more of M. Nai Midnight, mm-hmm. an interesting character dispatched far too quickly. Another is that there is a bit of stereotyping going on. Mysterious and often sinister Orientals, in quotation marks, Orientals and all. However, I call it more a product of its time than truly racist. I'm reminded of an interview on the DVD extras of one of the Christopher Lee Fu Manchu movies by Se Chin, uh, the Chinese actress who played Fu Manchu's daughter. 
They asked if she was bothered by these movies having such a sinister Chinese villain. She said she didn't mind the villain being Chinese, but she did mind that the heroes who bested him were always the white European guys. Never was there a Chinese hero affecting the story in any meaningful way. At least we get the capable Chinese hero here to balance out the Chinese villain. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, that is. And I actually, I forgot that the, the Fu Manchu novels, they're all written by, you know, a European guy and for a European market. So there might have been some market penetration in Europe for the, for this book because they would have been well familiar with Fu Manchu. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Romer's an Englishman, as I, uh, as I remember. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do one more comment. It's really long. I got this on Twitter from a guy that goes by the handle, The Watcher <laughs> Collects Comics. I thought this was solid. It is interesting that Starlin left the book because of the racial undertones and stereotyping within the dialogue, but did return to do a few issues toward the end of the run. There isn't much to tie in with the other characters, as it's all Nayland Smith and Fu Manchu each issue, apart from the Spider-Man team-up, which felt out of place in this volume. The racial stereotype of Chinamen being grouped as kung fu chop suey people was interesting, as the New Yorkers and thugs never thought Shang-Chi to be grouped as being smart, which is the case nowadays. There definitely is a, you know, an all Asians are smart people kind of stereotype, isn't there? I know that I've fallen into that category before. Mm. I also wasn't sure to take offense, being half Asian myself, to Shang-Chi colored as deep yellow, in case that you didn't know that he was Chinese. The art stayed pretty consistent throughout the collection, but the storytelling got better and better at the end. I think that the Saifan killers were beginning to look a lot like barbarians, and not as Chinese as Fu Manchu. Just look at the back cover. The stories were written well by Englehart at the beginning, but no doubt the best storylines and art were mentioned Galassi. Like Power Man and Iron Fist, Epics Volume 1 and 2, this was definitely like reading straight out of a time capsule, as it depicted the era and social prejudice as well, and is by far the best documented time example of the epic collection. I am highly recommend this collection and volume two. Um, and then he goes, he got an, has another comment here. He said, the comics code allowed the social undertones to be allowed, but yet I wonder if the, a political jibe in the story would have been deemed more unacceptable. The code seemed so inconsistent. Also, the snapping of Midnight's neck and, and seeing him hanging dead from the crane in the early issues and accompanying dialogue would have been extremely violent for, for the period in comics in transition between the Silver and developing Bronze Age. I wonder sometimes if a comic like this just flew under the radar of the comics code. That could be. Because yeah. even the sexuality in this book, this book is going to be much like the James Bond movies that Mensch um, is trying to imitate later on the sexuality is really overt. You're not getting nudity, but uh, you're getting a lot of movement towards um, sex. And not, e not even necessarily sex in a loving sort of fashion. Sometimes it's just casual sex. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. So I wonder if the comics code was just like, all right, it's a kung fu book. Let's just move on <laughs> sort of thing, as opposed to really taking a deep dive in it. Well, and I also know that it definitely skewed older because it had the, it has the, the magazine counterparts. Uh, which the magazine didn't have to uh, abide by the code because mm -hmm. of, because of its specific format. So there were way more mature storytelling uh, elements in the magazine comics in the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. So if if editors or people or the Comic Code Authority or whoever was checking these was comparing these issues with the Deadly Hands issues, well, these ones are way more tame. So yeah. it's, they've already done their job of self censoring. Maybe they didn't need to do any more, and they let it. They just let it go. Several of the commenters have raised the issue of the racist depictions. Yeah. Um, and I guess we should kind of dive in a little bit on that because it's going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with throughout. Um, 
The coloring is problematic. Shang-Chi, who is half Asian, is depicted with this kind of gold color. Yep. So he's not depicted as being white. He's marked as an other by the golden color, but the golden color tones generally invoke a positive sort of imagery. However, we contrast that with uh, Fu Manchu. Oh my God, the coloring there is awful. <laughs> Where it's this washed out yellow... Um, and a lot of the other villains of Asian extraction also have this washed out yellow sort of coloring to it. And yeah. that is, of course, meant to imply villainy. So there is this stamping, this image stamping, visual stamping of what is villainy versus what is positive. Yeah, yeah. And this definitely stems back, like this is a cultural um, a cultural reminder of of where where people stood in the 70s and the the cultural depictions here of Fu Manchu they go back like i don't know hundreds of years yeah. and the, the 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 orient has always been a very mysterious thing uh, especially before the days of television when people and and the days before the days of intercontinental airlines People didn't go over to China or over to Asia, you know, really at all and didn't really know anything about it other than the odd picture that they would see in a magazine or something. And so a lot of that, a lot of their their customs, their traditions, you know, the medicine, the, the everything, it was just such a mystery. And when something's a mystery, you tend to not trust it. And that was, that was a lot of... Uh, the way people viewed any Oriental people. For those of you who don't know, because this is a podcast and you can only hear my voice, I'm half Asian. My mom's side is Chinese. And so I am a, I think a third generation, one, two, three, no, fourth generation Canadian. So my family's been in Canada for a long time. I don't speak the language. Um, I don't really follow any of the customs, but I look visibly Asian. And so I have felt that, you know, the, the oppression or prejudice that you can feel being just a person, a minority. So, so I'm sensitive to some of these issues here for sure. But at the same time, I'm also a huge fan, huge, huge, huge fan of classic animation, especially from World War II. I love mm -hmm. that era. I find it so interesting. And, of course, because Japan was uh, an enemy of America during World War II, there are a lot of negative um, Asian depictions in a lot of the animation, especially coming from Disney uh, at, at the time. And, and Warner Brothers, Popeye, all of those ones had cartoons where Japanese were the villains. And you had the huge stereotypes um, that, that really, really showed you who the villains were. And those depictions are the ones that were popular uh, in, in media at the time. And so anytime moving forward and through the 50s and 60s and now even the 70s, when someone wanted to vilify any Asian people, you would do the same thing. So if you look at Fu Manchu, it's not just the skin color. It's also the pointy ears. Mm -hmm. It's also the really long fingernails. It's also the, the Spock eyebrows. Um, and the air of opium that always seems to be around him as well. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, absolutely. And it's also the, the 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 facial hair, the Fu Manchu mustache, which is was popularized because of the Fu Manchu movies. All right. of those things are now considered. That's that's how you depict an evil Oriental. Is you got to add some of those elements. That's why Shang Chi has none of those elements uh, because he's not the bad guy. 
Um, so these have become kind of the stereotypical symbols of what it means to be an Oriental villain. Doesn't matter what kind of Oriental you're talking about, whether it's Japanese, Korean, Filipino, whatever, you stick those ones in, all of a sudden you have an evil Oriental. I'd say the, the tension for the modern audience also is complicated because of where the influence from this specifically is coming from. Yeah, for sure. You, we have the, 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 the Sachs-Romer stories and the whole colonial vision of, of the evil Asian. Um, but that's not where these comic book writers, I think, are getting their chief influence. I think what they're getting their influence is the Shaw Brother Kung Fu movies. Yes, and so when they're depicting Fu Manchu, they're drawing from the Romer stuff, uh, the Christopher Lee depictions, maybe even the Karloff depiction of Fu Manchu. But they're also drawing from Asian representations of villainy in those Kung Fu movies and merging them together. So this is where a lot of my wrestling with just what are we doing here with in terms of the racism or the prejudice because we're getting two visions of what villainy is from a white source and a Asian source interpreted by enjoyers of the medium. So it's complicated, I guess, is the best way to kind of wrestle with it. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated is that they didn't try to, to represent a fake Chinese accent, I guess. Or oh, like do God. the thing where they swap the L's with the R's, which is ridiculous. Yeah, like they they just speak in normal voices, so that's that's nice. In regard to the skin tone colors, I don't have an issue with Shang Chi being colored this golden color because Asian skin is a darker hue than Caucasian skin. My wife is Caucasian, and if you put us side by side, you can definitely see that my skin is more golden than hers is. Mm. And so that that I don't have a huge issue with. I mean, if you're going to color an African-American person with a much darker skin hue, then why not do that with an Asian person as well? I think that's okay. The The bleached yellow color of Fu Manchu, that's the issue right there. Because sure. that's not at all anything based in reality. That's another thing to make Asian people look garish. Something that was de derived to make them look like a villain. Absolutely. Yeah, it's almost ghoulish in yeah. terms of how they're they're depicted. Not even human, not even alive or something yeah. along those lines. Awful. You, you also have to keep in mind that comics in the 70s had a very limited color palette. You, there were only about 64 colors you could choose from. So if you're going to pick a skin tone that's not the typical Caucasian skin tone, your options were fairly limited. So I think there's a little element of forgiveness when trying to, to come up with the golden color of Shang-Chi. Yeah. It doesn't even really make sense, though, Shang-Chi's coloring, because his mom is a blonde white woman. Right. And his father is that kind of awful. But yeah, anyway, right. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> even the artists have trouble at times even depicting Asiatic features. Um, so it will, you know, it is what it is. Yep, it <laughs> is. I think that people just need to think of this in its context. I mean, even the 70s, it's like this is after the civil rights movement and everything. The 70s is still fairly late to be um, succumbing to some of these cultural depictions. But uh, but they, they, they do their best with what they have. Sure. I, I find that they are not, it's terrible to say they're not as offensive as they could be, because that's still, you know, it's still offensive. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I don't feel like they were doing it intentionally to vilify Asians in general. They did it because the, the Fu Manchu is already established as a villain. I knew that Fu Manchu was big trouble. And if I were Chinese, I'd be totally pissed. 
So I tried to to be as respectful as possible, but how how far can you go without just saying, "Well, I refuse to do Fu Manchu," you know? Right. Uh, he's he's a stereotype evil yellow menace, you know. Um, I did have a battle with the colorists and finally got them to stop coloring him yellow. Yes. <laughs> uh, just color him regular, what you call flesh color. It's the same, you know. Well, but he's but he's Chinese, and I remember I. <laughs> it wasn't that there was a, a Japanese uh, uh, letterer, I think. And I went up to her and I said, I, I held my, my arm up to her arm and I said, you see any difference? Come on. And they, <laughs> they finally, they finally stopped with the yellow crap. Wow. Yeah. I used to call it, it was like banana yellow. You it, know? Yeah. It was, it was really, like really pale. Yeah. And then, and they did do Shang-Chi a little different, but, but I liked the different color. You ever notice Conan was a little different? Yep. It was like a little red, a Much little more reddish, red. yeah. like what you would like an American Indian or something. Mm-hmm. And Shang Chi was a little, a little more golden than yep. Caucasians. And it's like, well, it's they shouldn't do that. But I kind of like it. I like the fact that he looks a little bit different, and it's a, it's an appealing color. It's like soothing to my eye. So I didn't, I didn't fight that. I let it go. And one thing I will say, and I hate to, I hate to be the one saying it because I'm not, I'm not Asian myself. I'm a middle-aged white guy. But one of my Asian friends do make, did, does make this great point that despite the depictions, it was really great to see an Asian guy in a comic book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's something that I I love seeing Asian people in movies and stuff. One of the the biggest complaints I have about the rise of Skywalker is that they shoved Rose to the side. Mm. I didn't think that she was a very great character in The Last Jedi, and I would have liked her to be seen, like, I would have wanted her to be used more effectively in Rise, but instead they shoved her aside. The only Asian person on the cast, on the, in the cast, and they minimalized her role. As someone from an Asian descent myself, very disappointed to see that. But, you know, I don't know what the thinking is. I'm super excited that we have a Shang-Chi movie coming up because the Asian representation in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been so minimal. You can count on one hand the number of Asian characters in that 24-movie franchise. Mm. So I'm looking forward to getting one that's actually headlined, and uh, I'm I'm hoping that it's going to be super good. <laughs> oh, I, I trust in the MCU. Those I've yet to be disappointed in one of those movies, but I'm an easy sell. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm a sucker for those movies. I mean, you saw the waves when Black Panther had his movie, how the black community, the African-American community, really latched on to the fact that this is this is a hero that looks like us. And this mm-hmm. is what I want for Shang-Chi, for the Asian community. This is, a, this is a hero in predominantly white Hollywood that looks different. And I'm so happy that we get that. And I think if, if, if they take the Black Panther template down and apply that to the Shang-Chi movie, it's going to be fantastic. Because the MCU really leaned into the Africanness, for lack of a better term, of the Black Panther. Wakanda yeah. is, is highlighted. 
the techno-African sort of art palette is embraced. Mm-hmm. And if they can do a similar thing with that to the Shang-Chi movie, it'll be spectacular. Yep. I definitely want this to be like full-on kung fu. I, I don't want to have the, you know, the fast camera, shaky... Oh, um, quick cuts. Whatever, all that kind of stuff. I want to, like, let's, let's see the gracefulness of the kung fu come out here. Strap them on wires yep. and let them fly through the air. Totally. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Okay, I think that we've spent long enough talking about this. We really need to get into yes, these, these issues here because um, we have a lot of material to cover. In fact, uh, we're already 40 minutes in, so I don't know that we're going to even get to, <laughs> through this whole book. But we're going to plow through as much as we can here and see what happens. So let's start with issue number 15. This is Marvel Special Edition number 15, the very first appearance of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. In fact, the issue is self-titled. And this one, Fu Manchu sends Shang-Chi on his first mission to assassinate Dr. Petri, or Petri. Dr. Petri is a character from the novels. So I guess we haven't really talked about the supporting cast of of these stories here. We have two characters, Dennis Nayland Smith, Mm-hmm. Um, and Petri are both characters from the novels. I believe Black Parr is as well. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we meet. Do we meet him in this first issue or later on? No, not this first issue. Uh, and so these characters are the ones who are against uh, Fu Manchu and have, are tracking him down through the different through the different novels. They become the supporting cast for this book, making room for Shang Chi to become the main character. So we and and they've aged. I like the way that they do this. Um, because the novels take place through like 1913 to 1950, and so the characters, of the ages of Nayland Smith and Petri in this in this comic are the ages as if they had continued aging past the 1950s. Uh, so they're old men now. That's a great touch. And then uh, Fu Manchu is still the same age, and they explain this. He's found some sort of magical elixir that's keeping him the same age he's always been. Uh, this one is written by Englehart, drawn by Jim Starlin, and you can really, really see Starlin's influence in these issues. If you look at um, pages uh, seven, the layout on page seven, uh, w- where you see like it looks like um, Fu Manchu is maybe on an old TV set where the, there's kind mm-hmm. of grainy picture quality. And it, it just kind of flickers in and out. If you can imagine this being a movie and just see a blip of his face come in every once in a while. And then the very, very bottom row where you have Shang-Chi's face on the left and Fu Manchu's face on the right. And in the middle, it's like the two faces are being blended together to represent that they are father and son. Mm. Very cool stuff. It is. Galatia's going to play around with that a little bit later on yeah, as well. Yeah, you'll definitely hear, feel his influence uh, like Starlin's influence on Galacy's work. Him and Jim Stranko are huge influencers, it seems. Uh, also, look on page nine, and there's another. I just want to point out one more thing about Jim Starlin's art. You can see this top tier Fu Manchu bathed in the pink hues, and then the the house bathed in blue hues. Mm-hmm. And he's um, Starlin is doing this fake cross dissolve from one scene to the next by making the thinner panels becoming thicker panels or in, or thinner panel thicker panels becoming thinner panels to transition from one scene to the next it's very cool 
courtesy of a great way of looking at these comics. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I love uh, I love just looking at the way that the artist will will tell the story, and it's just fantastic. Starling's great at this. Uh, yeah, I love Starling's work. Um, I'm not as uh, I'm not a huge Starling fanboy in terms of his art as I am for his writing. I like his writing much more. Mm, yeah. And one of the things I always kind of Eh, kind of, I guess, criticized Starlin for, not harshly, um, is the over-muscularization of some characters. So if we look on 16 and 17, where you have this fantastic action flow, the sumo f- character there, Tak, is yeah. just way too rippling in the muscles in a way that is not exactly uh, fits biology and how that would work. But just the way the action flows, though, it's easy to forgive. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's he definitely doesn't have this sumo physique except for around his gut yeah no they have no problem showing the gut but even there you can see kind of ribs popping out of the gut <laughs> that wouldn't have no you wouldn't see ribs <laughs> no <laughs> you're not gonna see that <laughs> but still it's a beautiful layout it's a great design yes and i really appreciate when you have action where the fir- where one panel sets up what's going to happen in the next panel by where you see how the bodies are kind of arrayed yep uh, and this this does that does that fantastic. Glacey's a genius at that as well later on. Now, I wonder on this same page on 1617 what the, kind, the, what the Chinese characters say that are scattered around. Yeah. Um, I'm not Chinese myself. So, I mean, sorry, I don't speak it myself, so I can't, say, uh, I can't say what it is. But maybe if you one of you listeners out there has an idea, you can send us a message. That would be interesting to know. I'd love to hear. love to read that. Uh, as far as origin stories go, this is okay. My only issue is that I felt, and I know this is necessary in order to just get get it out there and, and have Master of Kung Fu get on his journey, but I felt that his realization that his father was is evil came a little too easily, I guess. Mm. I mean, it was a random stranger said, your dad's a bad guy. And Shang-Chi was basically like, oh man, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess we're going to get a little bit more development on that, especially yeah. in the next issue. Um, but it does, and Shang-Chi does come off as naive in these first few issues. Right. Um, and I think that that's kind of playing on the notion they had, at least, of Shang-Chi early on. Now, the character of Shang-Chi is going to evolve, and he's going to be a much, his, his journey is going to be a much broader one than you would typically see in comic books. Um, but the idea that they have early on is that he's just a simple kind of, a babe in paradise or with all these crazy things happening around him and he doesn't seem to quite understand it yeah later on that's going to be completely the opposite he's going to be able to see through people pretty well but um yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, so i guess that he's ultimately deceived by his father i like the big reveal at the end of this issue that the whole thing is taking place in new york because at this mm-hmm. point you have no idea um everything is happening in a castle or in a fortress of some sort and then he steps outside and he's in the middle of New York City. And I thought that was really cool. I wasn't sure if this book was going to take place in China or, or in England or where. Uh, I think it's a smart move on Englehart's part to place it in New York. Uh, first of all, because that's, he knows what to write. You don't have to fall into trying to figure out anything about you know what the Chinese buildings look like. The artists will probably have an easier time drawing New York. And then also the mm-hmm. readers can identify with New York as well, especially readers of Marvel Comics. They're well familiar with New York. 
So by placing the action here, I think services um, a lot of good good qualities that'll help this book moving forward. Yeah, and it's also going to open up some themes that um, they want to play around with, um, especially the racist theme that's going to come up over and over again. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we'll touch on that as we go along. Shall we jump into uh, Marvel Special Edition number 16? Yes, let's do that. So this is one of my favorite issues because as one of your um, – uh, commenters there uh, mentioned this is where you get one of the more interesting of the Shang-Chi villains and sadly one of the most underutilized yeah. and that is Midnight his brother so essentially the background on this on the action of this issue is that Fu Manchu had rescued a child in Africa in an African village after colonial folks had come through there and killed everybody um, and so the kid was rescued. He was trained by Fu Manchu to almost be a brother to Shang-Chi. And the art, again, depicts this fantastically. Page 31 at the upper right-hand corner, you get that split screen to show that they're almost Shang-Chi and Midnight are almost the same person. Yeah. Um, however, Shang-Chi has now betrayed the father. And so the father is going to send out assassins. And in this case, he decides to send out his best assassin. And that is going to be Midnight, which is going to lead to a fantastically cinematic fight across New York, ending in a crane fight that's going to end tragically for Midnight, where he ends up dying. Which is a problem in Shang-Chi, the Master of Kung Fu series, that you get these really visually compelling villains, sometimes with a great background like Midnight, and they die. <laughs> and they don't come back. This is a book that has stakes to it. People will die, and you kind of almost got to not get attached to some of these villains. Um, and so that's going to be the case with Midnight here. One of the things that um, I, the watcher that collects comics, I forgot, I didn't say this one part of his comment because he left a lot of comments, um, but uh, he found it interesting that the African-American character was dressed in all black and he was called Midnight. Is that a... You think that is a also a sort of an insensitive depiction? I mean, it's the same mm. as you calling, you know, Black Panther is a black guy in a black costume. Is it too on the nose to have a black character called Midnight? I suppose it's a way you could read it. Um, I did not read it that way. I read it as a very compelling character myself. Yeah. But again, uh, that my perspective is from a middle-aged white guy. <laughs> right. And I don't know. And same with me. I mean, I don't know what any actual African-Americans would, would think of this. I felt like the midnight refers to more of the dark, twisted nature of his soul than anything, um, especially because his face is horribly disfigured underneath. Mm -hmm. um, and so the black, it all works together with the, the scars on his face, with the, the representation of him being bathed in black, um, and just his attitude toward his own brother. And um, I think it all works together just to show that he is a tortured person. Yeah, I mean, now that, you, now that we bring up the topic, I, th I think we could, that there is maybe a lot that could be said about it. Um, page 32, for example when you're having the dialogue between Fu Manchu and Midnight, um, in the middle oh, row at yeah. the left, where he, he admits to Fu Manchu, I'm your slave now and forever. Right. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> um, so maybe the idea that here's a black man who's completely betrayed himself by embracing slavery on behalf of evil, that's some, that's some sticky area. It gets a little greasy when you start reading into that, but maybe it's there. Maybe that was their intention. Yeah, he, and he says, without your intervention, I would be dead, or at least at best, an uneducated jungle savage. 
Yikes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there is uh, some of those elements there that probably are not that great. Mm. Um, Midnight, Jim Starlin. I, I was reading uh, the, the Silver Surfer epic collection, um, Thanos Quest, by Jim Starlin. And he brings Midnight back into the picture as a cosmic character. Yeah, I've read that too. Um, I haven't actually read the issues, but I've read, the, I've, I've read that that occurs. Have you read those issues? Yep, yep. I did an episode on that one. You can uh, search it out on uh, epicmarvelpodcast.com. Oh, right. And it's, yeah, he, he has these discs that are attached to his hands and his feet that allow him to move through space. Uh, I think he lives on the moon. Mm. <laughs> so he, he goes through quite, a, a, quite an evolution as a character, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, and then having him, oh, having Midnight hanging, now that I think about it, oh, it's almost like imagery that's reminiscent of a lynching. Oh, lynching, yeah. Oh. Wow, yeah, you're right. That's uh, There is a lot to unpack with that that character there. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a shame that we didn't get him again, though. Um, there is a character in Moon Knight that looks an awful lot like him. Right. And I believe it's from uh, Mench's run as well. So maybe Mench kind of looking back on it was like, ooh, I wish I could have done more with that character and kind of slips him in. But And it's not the same character, though. No, they, it's not. They call him, I think they call him Mr. Midnight, but yeah. he's, and he looks the same, uh, dressed all in black. You can't see his face. But the it's top not, hat. But it's, yeah, and the hat. But it's, I don't think it's the same character. Nope, not the same character. Yeah. Okay, moving on to Master of yeah. Kung Fu number 17. This is the first issue that is actually titled Master of Kung Fu. Uh, this one's called Lair of the Lost. Nayland Smith lures Chang-Chi to a death house where Black Jack Tar is waiting to take him down. Uh, at this point, they are still enemies. Uh, they'll, become, they'll become allies in a little bit here, but they are still enemies here. And I love this. This issue is just fun 70s, like put the hero mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a terrible situation and, and have him get out of it. <laughs> and he, there's a whole house that is just full of death traps. I love it. <laughs> that is fantastic. I love the. Um, did you you pick up that on uh, page right at the beginning, page forty-seven? The three guys are meant to be Al Milgram, Starling, and Engelhart. They're oh. trying to mug Shang Chi. I did not. I did not know that. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he beats the tar out of him. <laughs> so. That must have been fun for the uh, the comic creators to say, hey, you know what? Why don't we just throw ourselves in here and, and go awesome. up against Shang-Chi? Yeah. <laughs> That's a, I love when they do that, have a little bit of fun with themselves. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, now that I can... You have to know what these, these people looked like in the 70s, but the blonde-haired guy is definitely Starlin. Mm-hmm. I think the curly is... Uh, is that Milgram? Um, yeah, that's Milgram, and Doug Mensch had that... Um, Englehart, like or or Englehart. Oh yeah, that's Englehart. It's not it's not uh, Mensch yet, is it? Um, no, not yet. Yeah, I have to think of what Englehart looked like back then. I don't think I know. Anyway, I'll have to do some Google image searching to find that out. Mm. That's cool. This, this issue is fun. Could you also get a, a sense of the expanded villainy of uh, Fu Manchu in terms of what we see when we look at um, uh, at the leg there of uh, of uh, Sir Dennis, and it looks like he's. Like it's been terribly messed with, um, and to cause him to be paralyzed. Yeah, and that kind of introduces the idea of the evil scientist as well—not just the criminal mastermind, but also kind of, kind of works in some other weird angles. 
Yeah, I, I like how this issue uh, really shows Shang Chi how he how his just his personality influences people, um, because it's through this one where they they become friends, I guess, or uh, they have the understanding of where each other stands and are going to take down Fu Manchu together. Um, mm-hmm. Nayland Smith has an effect on Shang Chi, and Shang Chi has a similar effect on Nayland Smith. It's very cool. Mm. We also get Black Tar. Uh, Black Jack Tar yep. in here. He's going to be a steady throughout the series. Um, and his characterization is a little bit rough. He refers to Shang-Chi always as that Chinaman. Yeah. Uh, but it's a relationship that I almost kind of view as being very similar to how uh, guys in, like, say, the military will kind of make fun of each other, their their backgrounds, in a way that's not meant to be offensive, uh, right. but meant to be kind of camaraderie. Sort yeah, of thing. there are definitely instances where you can see that uh, Shang-Chi has Blackjack Tar's respect. Uh, so there's, there's no question about their relationship, but yeah, he does still call him Chinaman, which these days doesn't fly, that's for sure. <laughs> and that's a lot of people are going to use that term in this particular volume um, yep. and even go a little worse at times. Yeah, so. yeah. I was actually kind of surprised at some of the terminology you find in this book. Mm. Um, do you have anything more you want to say on, the, on this issue? I do not. I think we can jump on to uh, Master of Kung Fu uh, number 18. From June of 1974. So this is Paul Glacey's first issue. Jim Starlin is now off. He only did three issues, which is kind of too bad. Um, But now we have Paul Glacey. And he really comes in with a bang, like right off the bat. His his action sequences are dynamic. His poses are, are just way out there. Um, he, he plays a lot with anatomy, with shadows, um, and then you get to the page 78 where you get that one hallucination splash page, oh, and it's just bizarre. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. And you get a real sense of who he is as an artist right off the bat and what he hopes to accomplish with this book. Like, he's, mm. a, he's, a, great, he's a great fit. Now, I'll say a couple things about Galassi. One fun game to play of Galassi is to try to figure out who he's modeling for the various characters. Okay. Galassi is a, or was at least at the time, a huge movie fan. And oftentimes you can, if you look at the characters, he's using movie actors uh, for the models for his characters. Now, the obvious one you're going to see is Bruce Lee yep, for Shang-Chi. Definitely. Um, that, that one stands out. But it's going to, as we go on, we're going to see the, like, Reston's going to be, I think, like a Marlon Brando character or something along those lines. But they pop up throughout uh, Glacey's run, which is fun. Now, the benefit here is that I really feel like Paul Glacey has a way better, a way better hand at drawing um, Asian facial features. Mm-hmm. Because Shang-Chi now looks way more Asian than Starlin did. And mm-hmm. especially when you get further on and we'll have a, a John Buscema issue, like those guys, they kind of just look like the typical faces that they do. Glacey does a really good job of making Shang-Chi look like an Asian person, you know, without and, going overboard. And building on to that, it, that point, Glacey also understands the genre better than any of the other artists do. Yeah. I can only imagine Glacey used to go and watch these Shaw Brother films. Oh, um, I'm sure, yeah. Or maybe even studied martial arts himself. If you get a chance to interview him, I'd love to... That'd be a question you should kind of maybe will. hit him with. Yep. Because the way he, he shows the action, just the body language, the movements, the way blows are being delivered is very reminiscent of somebody who understands that. And I love that that's one quality. And when we look at like... um. 
uh, Ron Wilson, who comes on as a guest in a few issues later, you're going to see he just doesn't get it. it. Just doesn't. I love Ron Wilson, but he just he's not a kung fu guy. He's a boxing guy. Yeah. Another thing about Golasi that I love is the way he does the physicality of Shang Chi is again very reminiscent of Bruce Lee. If you look at how Starling did Shang Chi, he's, he's he's diesel. He's buff. He looks like a guy who's at the gym, right? Pumping iron. Not Golasi. Golasi Shang Chi is is petite. It's he's ripped. Um, but he's not bulky, and that lends itself, I think, to the genre uh, very well as well. It looks like a very athletic character. It looks like a very agile character. Well, and that's Bruce Lee's physique right there. Absolutely. He was a small guy, but completely like it was all muscle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and he can draw big guys. Black Tar- Blackjack Tar, for example, is going to be depicted as very large and overpowering, mm-hmm. which is an interesting contrast. Um uh, again, if we're kind of playing around East versus West sort of depictions, a lot of the Asian characters, with the exception maybe of Tak, the sumo, are tend to be depicted as smaller as opposed to the physicality of the Western characters, which are usually depicted much larger. Um, Black Tar, for example, you get a, and one of the things I appreciate here is that Black Tar, you get a sense of how he fights. He fights by using his physical power, right. overpowering you, just pummeling you. Um, while Glacey's Shang-Chi is more about the finesse. It's about the pinpoint strikes. It's about the movements. And that's how he wins his fights. It's like when I watch a good action film. So, for example, if I can go on a little bit of a, a little bit of a, an aside here, mm-hmm. one of the things I love about watching the Fast and Furious movies, and I know some of your audience probably are just rolling their eyes <laughs> at that, but if you watch these from the idea of, of the action, the fighting action, you might note that each one of the characters has their own unique fighting style that fits their physicality. So Statham, for example, does his martial arts. The Rock always tries to overpower. Um, Vin Diesel character has a very street fighting sort of methodology to it. This is kind of what I'm seeing played out in Master of Kung Fu and it makes me love this comic all the more. Cool. Yeah, that's a really great observation. A final point I'll make about Galaxy, um, and I'm going to be somewhat critical of the Epic Collection, is that this art is wonderful on the newsprint because it adds a certain level of grit the newsprint does as opposed to this where the colors pop so much. Um, and maybe that's just my preference, how I kind of first came to the book. But I love that, that that kind of newsprint kind of grit to it and the smell of it. It just kind of has adds that extra layer of sort of 1970s sleazy action film <laughs> cinema <laughs> to, right. it, to it. Well, that that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting because I've never, of course, this is my only exposure to these comics is through the Epic Collections where it's beautifully restored, where the ink sits on top of the paper rather than being absorbed into the newsprint like a comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, that does give it a very, very different feel. It muddies up the image. Mm-hmm. It, the pulpiness shows through, which, like you said, gives it this grit. That would be kind of cool to go with the whole kind of grindhouse 1970s kind of attitude t- toward underground cinema. That would be a neat, a neat way to, to view this for sure. Yeah. Well, let's jump into this issue. So this is Master of Kung Fu 18, June 1974. Opens up with, um, and this gives you something we're seeing in every one of these issues. These endless mobs of these sci-fan assassins, and some of them are, are just nameless mobs, and some of them actually are given names and unique fighting styles. This one, we open up with this guy called Setsumu, who fights with a silk noose. Um, yeah. Shang-Chi beats him up pretty well. Uh, the story starts moving itself down to Florida, where we're going to get a drug deal coming in. So again, we're starting to move away from just 
a story that involves she walking the streets of New York beating up random gangs to now he starts fighting in larger crimes organized crime involvement. This is going to be a direction we're going to be heading pretty consistently from this point going forward. Um, I love that you get a fight on the uh, the airplane. That's kind of fun. Yeah. The drug mimosa is in play here. I think that actually comes from is something that's played up in the uh, the Sax Romer novels as well that he kind of deals in that. And as you mentioned before, on page 78, you get this fantastic picture there. I mean, that's something I want on my wall. That's just <laughs> beautiful. I could yeah. have, I, if only they had done that in one of those black light paint or posters from the 1970s. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. That would have just been unbelievable. Um, and I even love how at the bottom you see like a, the whole, the, 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 the island that they're on is shaped like a skull. And you see yes. a, a skeleton arm crawling out from it. It's just fantastic. Fantastic stuff. Um, and what else to say about this issue? Essentially, it brings us into this, uh, this this new world of the international drug dealing. We have another fight with Satsuma or Sadama. Um, and this time, uh, it doesn't go very well for the character as he ends up um, committing suicide after his face gets burned. Yeah. And blow up the whole, the whole entire tanker with a really good kick of a torch into the fuel tank of the ship that blows it up. There, if you go to page 72, um, there's, a really, there's a really great conversation between Shang-Chi and, and, and Dennis, Nayland Smith. Mm. Um, and Nayland Smith is talking about the time during the, the, the Sax Romer novels. He says, I was 28 then, and like every Occidental, I feared the unknown East and its yellow peril. Uh, when Fu Manchu swept out of China, I knew I had to stop him. Um, please understand, I still do. I have learned of the man behind the symbol, but I still consider him the most evil man alive, and I would ha- hate dying with my work unfinished. And it just, uh, we were talking about how, how China was just viewed as the unknown. And even now, as uh, in the 70s, Nayland Smith is an old man, he's learned more about Shang-Chi, and he realizes that a lot of his stuff in the past was based on based on the fear, of just the fear of the unknown. Um, but having having moved past that, now knowing more about Fu Manchu, he understands that the actual evil is with the man, not the fear. So I like that. Mm-hmm. And then then um, Shang Chi follows up the conversation here um, because Blackjack Tar says, "I am the only weapon you need against Fu Manchu." It's like you don't need this guy, Shang Chi. You just need me. And then Shang Chi says. Um, but we speak only of aid. I could, I could not be Fu Manchu's weapon, and I shall not be yours. And I like that. It's like he's not yeah. going to be used by anybody. And you get this time and time again where they go into the situation together as a team, but then Fu Manchu kind of goes off and does his own thing uh, and doesn't even tell them where he's going. <laughs> he just disappears um, because he's off to, he has his own you know, personal quest. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of tension between that pairing. Uh, Dennis Smith, uh, he, he almost becomes a, the quest giver, but Shang-Chi, as you said, just kind of goes his own, goes rogue almost every time. Yeah. Um, and it's going to lead to a lot of tension, especially as we start getting into the middle issues of the entire run. Some of the later epics, I'm sure, we're going to kind of play around with some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing's also kind of fun, kind of an homage back to the James Bond films, is every good villain has to have a pet, and Fu Manchu is a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I think... Gotta have it. 
I think that's consistent with the, the, the books and the movies as well. I'm pretty sure he had a monkey there too. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I can't remember. Okay, so moving on to issue number 19, uh, we are still in Florida. That, that's Sorry, that's where the, the previous issue led. Um, they, they got word of the shipment of mimosa that's going to Florida. So they're in Florida. They're in the Everglades. And Shang escapes his father by hiding in the Everglades where he meets Man-Thing. Here is our first tie into the larger Marvel Universe. Well, any time you're in the Florida Everglades, Marvel law states you must meet the man thing. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. And so here it is. Yep, here he is. And I love how Galacy draws man thing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he does a really good job. Fantastic. One thing that's interesting about the confrontation, because of course you have to fight the man thing too, you can't just meet the man thing, is um, it, the famous line is, all who know fear burn at the touch of the man thing. Yep. Shang-Chi meets Man-Thing, fights Man-Thing, gets almost gobbled up by Man-Thing, but doesn't burn. Ah. Does that mean he doesn't feel fear? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think he probably has been taught to, for, you know, to, to forget those feelings by his father. Trained to be the assassin, right? Assassins don't show fear in mm-hmm. their situations. And keep your cool under all circumstances. That's a very cool point. And they don't even, you know, they don't even bring that up. It's just something that you have to, you have to realize yourself through reading. And I didn't, yeah. I didn't pick that up. That's awesome. Um, one thing that's fun about this issue is this random person he meets who actually pulls him out of man thing yeah <laughs> that's a great art um is his character lu sun now the comic community will debate whether or not lu sun is a depiction of kwai chang kane from the television series kung fu okay and if you look at him kind of looks like Carradine, um a little bit more leaning into the asian depiction yeah of of uh, of the character than certainly we got in the um the kung fu television series but uh, Marvel would deny it and say, no, 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 that was not Kwai Chang Kang. Um, but the, the comic book community doesn't seem quite as <laughs> convinced. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought he was a, a character kind of based on Lao Tzu, one of the um, main Buddhist figures in, in, in Chinese Buddhism. Okay. Um, in the sense that he's a very calm and sort of a teacher sort of figure. Um, even pats Man-Thing on the back, and Man-Thing's like, oh, okay, cool, we're cool, and walks away. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on uh, whether this controversy goes one way or another? I, I have no idea. That, um, yeah, <laughs> I really don't know. Um, it could be either. I mean, I know that... Um, in order to maybe not have to pay any royalties for the depiction probably, of the person, yeah. Marvel probably said, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. And we know Gulacy loves drawing his movie actors. And right. Yeah, I'm exactly. sure Mensch is probably also influenced by this because he loves the genre so much. At least I'm assuming he loves the genre so much. Um, that's a that's a crazy show. Do you ever watch that show? No, never seen it. Mm. Uh, I used to watch when I was a little kid. Um, and it was one of those funny shows where every time, every episode, he shows up into a new town. People in the town are like, "We don't like your kind here," and then he beats everybody up. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't sound like doesn't sound like a great way to win over people. <laughs> Almost makes you wonder: is it you or is it everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but fun stuff. Yeah. Um, I love the panel where you actually do get to see what happens when those who know fear touch the man thing on page right. 102 through 103. My goodness, those guys don't just catch fire, they explode. 
Now, it's interesting to note that uh, when back in the 70s, it was not uncommon for a double page spread to be drawn on a single board, just turned sideways. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't two boards put together. And so whenever you see these in this book, uh, there's not as much detail or the, the lines are thicker. Uh, because he's working with a smaller canvas. He's not using a double-sized board. He's using one board that's been turned sideways. So he's essentially cutting his canvas in half to do a double-page spread. So yeah, it comes off a little bit in this one where where just the, the ink lines are thicker because the image is being reproduced at a, at a different size than normal. Curtis, once again, you're bringing that deep knowledge to the podcast. Thanks. Well, let's keep on going over to issue number 20, Weapon of the Soul. You want to take this one? All right, sure. So this is September of 1974. And essentially, we have uh, Shang-Chi showing up on shore, beating some more random guys up. This is going to be something that happens quite a lot here. Um, He's eventually going to get himself onto a casino boat, chasing down a casino drug dealer named Demi Marstons. And... He has a showdown with a samurai character named Korain, and unfortunately, Korain's going to be another one of these one-and-done sort of villains. He has a great look to him. I love the way the art creates like a flourish. When he swings the sword, you see these long swish yeah. within, the, uh, within the movement lines to emphasize it. But other than that, we got to kind of, again, get some homages to uh, the James Bond sort of era of movies where you have these casinos with all these rich fat cats and very lightly dressed women kind of intermingling yeah. among themselves. Right. Uh, the fight itself is is wonderful. Galacy has the, that kind of wild movement to it. Um, and at the end of it, um, Corrine is gone and one of the drug dealer's women are gone as well. And one thing I found about this, and it's going to be something we're going to see quite a lot, is it almost in video games. Sometimes you can put your video game on god mode. In other words, <laughs> nobody can touch you. You just go through hordes and hordes of villains, and it, it, it's just nothing. It's not even a sweat. We kind of start getting some of that in Master of Kung Fu, as it's just going to be hordes of these sci fan guys coming out of nowhere, and they just get dis- dispatched with just some cool panel action, but not much depth to the right. actual fighting. Yeah. Demi, the real story comes in with Demi Marston here. I find that he was actually kind of a cool character. His look, I can't place my finger on it, but there's that picture on 111. It's like, I, I know this face. Yeah. What? But what is it? I can't tell. Um, yeah, I was trying to look that up myself. Because <laughs> I, 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 again, that's that game you can play with, um, with Golasi. Who is he drawing? Yeah, and it's so familiar. Mm. Um, but his character is really cool because he's uh, not cool because he's just a, he's a horrible, de- de- deplorable character. Um, and you really get the sense when he's like, he, he really mistreats his girlfriend and at the same time really loves her at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and I, so I thought he was a, a good person to face off against Shang-Chi because Shang-Chi has the, he always has the moral high ground. He always sees the moral issues at play here. And this other, this character, Demi Marston, is a very immoral, conflicted character. And we'll see that come out even more in the next issue. Um, but it was, yeah, I, I thought this was a fun issue. It's interesting to note that this one is written by Jerry Conway. Um, Englehart is now out, and Conway... Although Doug Mensch does come in at the second part of the in story. The, in the second part of the story. So, and if you notice, um, it says here, the first part is, uh, what does it credit Jerry Conway as? Um, just as speech. And I don't know if that's just because they're playing with the credits, but mm. I, I kind of think that this is a Steve Englehart plot 
that Jerry Conway is just finishing up. Yeah. So he's finishing up the first half. Doug Mensch finishes up the second half because Englehart leaves abruptly. He leaves Marvel altogether, I think, at this point, right? Uh, yeah. Is that where he ran off to, uh, to Over DC? Over to DC, I think so, for one of those times, because he does that a few times. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that this is one of those times here. So he probably had his unfinished plot together and then just took off, leaving these guys to kind of finish up the issue. Uh, well, Roy Thomas asked me if I would do it. He was the, I guess, the editor-in-chief at the time. And uh, I said, Roy, you just asked me to do Iron Fist. I don't want to do two martial arts books, but... I, I, this, this was not very nice, but I said, I do like Master Kung Fu more than Iron Fist. And it wasn't <laughs> nice because Roy created Iron Fist. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it, it just popped out before I realized what I was saying, you know. And I said, you know, because Iron Fist is more like a superhero, you know, and this is more like regular martial arts kind of thing. And I tried to cover it up. But um, that and that was the that was the truth. Uh, Roy's version, what he's he just loves superheroes, and you know, we'll do a martial arts superheroes. What he, I guess, Gil Kane co-created it with him, maybe. Right. Um, yeah, and um, I loved you know reading superhero comics, but I did, when when it was time to write, it was it was always my least favorite thing to write, even though I loved reading them. So that's why I tended to do a lot of horror stuff and, you know, things like Planet of the Apes and Master of Kung Fu and whatnot. And even when I did superheroes, they they tended to be uh, Moon Knight or Batman, you know, didn't have superpowers really. Right. They were costumed heroes, but not superheroes. So um, he said, all right, uh, you'd rather do Master of Kung Fu? I said, yes. And he said, Okay. Another thing about this issue that's kind of interesting is you get an uneasy alliance on the art because on one hand you have Galassi and then on the other hand you have Al Milgram. And uh, last time we last time I was on the podcast we were talking about the Defenders and we covered an Al Milgram issue and I, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan of Al Milgram, but you could definitely see some Al Milgram faces. Like for example, on the big splash page 120, 121, that's Al Milgram. That's I don't I'm not seeing too much Galassi in some of those images. So you, and this is uh, another example of the the double page spread being done on one mm-hmm. board. You can see that there's not as much detail in the shading or the faces. That the lines are much thicker. And the weird poses. I mean, look at Shang-Chi on page 121. What, what kind of stance pose. is that? Well, Galassi does a lot of weird poses. I mean, if you go to the very first page of this issue, and you see Shang-Chi doing his kick behind him. Uh, mm. it, that's, that's a weird pose as well. A lot of this is the Starenko influence, because Starenko yes. was not yeah. opposed to doing weird poses as well. And if you look at where's the page where the assassin is is throwing his uh, just swinging his his nunchucks around on page one one four his sword not his nunchucks yeah and he's got like he, his arms stretched back behind him like I don't even know how you mm-hmm. swing your sword to follow the motion lines <laughs> the way that he does here I feel like that's such a Jim Steranko type of emotion or even Steve Ditko to an extent always had these weird sort of um, movements that look like it would be almost impossible to do from a human being. But 
what I will say to to it is it works for me at least. Uh, maybe not the upper right hand panel on page one fourteen, but those middle panels that just works in yeah. a really interesting way. It does, and it works because it's specific to this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get a sense like this guy. This 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 is his martial arts right here. Like this is the way he does things. Um, Glacy doesn't do the same sort of movements with every character. Uh, I guess harkening back to your Fast and the Furious comment. Yeah, and it's it's also at peace with the martial arts films of the time too, where when a bad guy would show up, you get a sense of that bad guy um, by him doing some kind of funky thing with his own martial arts style. Yeah, um, <laughs> that always yeah. reminds me of the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, fantastic! Yep, yep, totally. <laughs> uh, that's a great one. All right. Um, so 121 or our page, uh, issue 21? Yeah, let's do issue 21. Season of Vengeance. This issue carries right where we left off. Uh, we have a different artist this time, uh, Ron Wilson. And you can really feel the difference in the tone when Ron Wilson does the art compared to, um, compared to Galassi. It's just a lot mm-hmm. more kind of grounded, I guess, down to earth. Yeah. Although we do have him fighting a giant shark, so... There's a, there's some cool <laughs> moments in here. <laughs> you know what though? though? That is consistent with some of the real underground kung fu or Hong Kong cinema. Uh, I'm, I'm sh- pretty sure I've seen Donnie Yen fight bears <laughs> in my time. <laughs> And yeah. we had the fight against the giant gorilla in the very first issue. Um, so these things happen. <laughs> so in this issue, we have Marston seeking revenge for the death of his girlfriend, which he blames Shang-Chi. It's not really Shang-Chi's fault. And Marston all would have gotten away with it if it weren't for the fact that Fu Manchu steps in and saves Shang-Chi's life. And he says, you know, the only person that's going to kill you is me. No one else. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought that's a very interesting dynamic. We we haven't seen Fu Manchu for a few issues now, but he's been watching the whole time. Uh, he's been paying attention to what's going on with his son, and he's waiting for the right moment to strike. And even the way he kills is is interesting um, and a contrast to Shang-Chi, uh, the way he fights, because Fu Manchu just basically unleashes a poisonous snake that does the deed for him so he doesn't even lift a finger it's just kind of there yeah showing that power he can control even forces of nature such as the nasty snake to get it done uh, again ron wilson if you know anything about ron wilson ron wilson is an amateur did a lot of amateur boxing and you can see that depiction depicted here in the violence okay uh, so like for example on page 136 you see a couple of good boxing punches although uh, my old boxing instructor would tell me to keep my left up <laughs> um, but he's, he punches a shark closed fist punches uh, or the big sumo guy punches shang chi knocks him out i kind of like that scene although there are some open hand kind of karate chops in here as well but certainly just the way the body motions are happening is not what you would see from glacy that's true who, again i think is a very much a fan of the genre that piece of the genre yeah i'm pretty sure that glacy does not do this issue because he at the time he's probably busy uh doing the pencils for giant size shank g number mm. one yeah so let's jump into that giant size you also wrote for the Hands of Kung Fu uh, magazine, the black and white magazine, right? Oh, my God. Why do you yeah, say that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, okay, you agreed to do Master Kung Fu, and then John Verporten comes in. He's in charge of trafficking, scheduling. Yep. And he says, uh, well, 
okay, you're doing uh, the Shang-Chi stuff, and it'll be too much of a pain in the neck to have someone else do the Shang-Chi stuff in the black and white magazine. And I'm going like, what black and white magazine? You know, oh, well, that's coming. Uh, so you're going to have to do that, too. Oh, really? Oh. And by the way, there's going to be giant size, so you're going to have to do a triple-length story every three months. <laughs> And there and there's annuals and and uh, oh yeah and he's the hottest thing over in Britain and they do their Marvel reprints on a weekly basis, so they're getting ahead of us because they you know they do like half an issue every week so it's like double what we're doing right. we do one a month and they do the you know, equivalent of two a month which is fine for spider-man and fantastic four because we got you know 15 years of backlog or whatever but with master of kung fu they're already running out and so you got to write ahead on the monthly one and by the way try to do it in you know uh, half issue segments so that it's <laughs> right. oh, jesus christ <laughs> And and then and don't forget the giant size one. And then you might as well do the first thirty-eight page black and white story. What? What a nightmare! I had Master Kung Fu coming out of my ears for yeah. wow. quite a while there. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, I never read any of the giant size titles from back in the day, so I had to kind of scramble back to find these ones. Um, but I'm glad I did because this is actually a really good um, issue. It has several different stories into it, and one story that's not reprinted here. I'll kind of talk about that in a moment. Okay. It starts off with the early format where Shang Chi is going to get the warnings that Fu Manchu is looking for him with this uh, doll, I suppose, stuffed effigy of Shang Chi on the streets. He gets attacked by random assassins who kill themselves upon um, being defeated by Shang-Chi. We get some beautiful layouts, very much emphasizing in uh, almost like a medieval Asian or medieval Chinese setting. I'm talking about page 150 where you see these beautiful layouts. Yeah. Yeah, kind of garish in their own way, especially with the color palette. Um, but just a lot of spectacular detail coming into it. The part two of, of the first story is, again, interesting because you get this moment where Shang-Chi passes by this woman who you assume is a prostitute. And Shang-Chi almost shows like a little bit of pity as he passes her by. Um, she's giving, you the, giving him the eyes of, hey, sailor sort of thing. And he kind of just keeps passing by. Um, ends up in a sewer, fights another really visually compelling villain with his own unique style of fighting, with this time with a mace. Or right. is that a morning star? I can't remember which. And then that guy's going to get dispatched, and uh, I don't think he ever appears again. The prostitute takes Shang-Chi home. Turns out she's an assassin as well. So again, you get this idea that everyone, anywhere can be a possible assassin. Yep. Um, Shang-Chi comes to the fort of uh, Fu Manchu and drives him off. And something that's going to happen quite a lot is Fu Manchu is going to make a daring last minute escape. Just when you think you go to get him, he's gone. <laughs> Story goes into a second story. These ones that come afterwards aren't quite as compelling. Again, it's just a lot of beating up of random people. One of the things I did love in this giant size is on page 176, 177, you get on a, a how-to for Shaolin um, temple boxing, and you get a little appearance of Iron Fist in there showing That's you the right. proper forms. I wonder how many kids looked at that, got in their mirror, and started trying to do their own kung fu. <laughs> I love it when they just throw in these little things. It, it's always it's always a special little treat. <laughs> it is. 
Um, the third story in this is going to be one of these ones where um, Shang-Chi defeats racism by Kung Fu. Yep. And essentially tries to rent a room. They say, look, we don't rent to your kind here. We don't like, not the likes of you. Um, and so it looks like he's going to get have to spend the night out in the streets. Some guys try to, to kill him. Um, he beats them up and in the process ends up saving the people who would not rent him a room, um, showing that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, I suppose. Yeah, I like this one. I thought this was nice, a nice story. So there was a story that was left out of this, and that was a reprint of um, a story called The Yellow Claw Strikes. And this is one of those golden age stories where you got the character of the Yellow Claw who was... I guess um, a Fu Manchu ripoff that Marvel was using. Um, and the story appeared in Yellow Claw number one from October of 1956. Um, it's kind of a tough one to get through, um, though, interestingly enough, the protagonist in that char- in that issue is a detective named Jimmy Woo. Right. So you have a depiction of an Asian character um, fighting off this Asian villain. And uh, Jimmy Woo is going to actually make an MCU appearance. He's going to be in Ant-Man 2. I yeah, understand he, it. he is one of the handful of Asian characters that I mentioned before. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's also going to be in, um, I think, the WandaVision TV series. Ooh. Yeah, so he'll make a same, same actor that make an appearance um i hope they don't make him a bumbling fool like they did in ant-man <laughs> yeah he was uh he was pretty funny there um i i think that uh in this in this last story here on page 182 in the last panel they use a very specific derogatory word mm. that i'm not going to repeat it's um it is the asian equivalent of you know the n-word for african-americans and I, I know I've heard my mom tell stories of, of when she was in school of being teased with this particular word and like it's not it's not good. So it, it shocks me to see it in print in something that's being published modern like like today. Um, I yeah. mean, I know that they're they're not censoring the stuff that's in these books, which is fine. I don't have a problem with not censoring it. Uh, it just is surprising to see it there. Yeah, it's so it's so different than just being called Chinaman. It shocked me as well when I read it, and of course I don't have, it's, um, you know, it's not something personal to me being of my background, but still just hearing those words, I guess it says something, uh, at least about my upbringing, that when I do hear those words or read those words, it's like, whoa, um, it shocks It shocks me. I'm glad, I'm glad it shocks you. I don't necessarily, I'm almost, I'm almost glad it's there just because it emphasizes, I like the emphatic nature of it, to add weight, I suppose, to the story, and it's certainly not coming out of the mouth of anyone who is considered right. to be a positive character. Yeah. It just emphasizes the evil and the villainy to it. And I, I think that that can almost be contrasted, kind of, again, a little bit of a tangent, when Kitty Pride and the X-Men used the N-word um, in making a, a philosophical point to a person in one of those issues. I can't remember which one. Wow, I'm not um, aware again, of that. Yeah, I'll have to find that issue. Yeah, um, it's a shocker, but it, at least in the Kitty Pride one, I thought that that was uses of it. I thought it was, it, it, it raised a conversation point. Hmm. In this one, it just emphasizes, it's the emphatic of, of the villainy being right. depicted. But still, to a modern audience, to me, for example, I was like, whoa, oh my goodness, how'd this get through? 
Yeah, and and if you were to write this issue today, you wouldn't use the word, no. even if it's coming out of the mouth of a villain. And I think that's no. fine because I don't want if if new young impressionable readers are coming into comics, I don't want them to think even if it's coming out of the mouth of a bad guy that it's language that that should be commonplace or or used or anything like that. One thing that struck me about this too is that um, it seems that the idea of racist language and racist themes depicted as an Asian character were not considered to be as bad, perhaps, as against a black character. Because I don't think you would have seen too much of this in the 1970s against a black character. But it's quite casual in terms of dropping terms like Chinaman is is casually done in the 1970s in, in this one. I think that because of the civil rights movement, a lot of um, a lot of momentum was being gained for the African American community, um, but not the same sort of momentum for any other minority. Right. It was primarily a movement for the African American community, which is which is great because there there was some terrible, horrible stuff going on there. But um, but yeah, you can tell in things like this that. Uh, the, the depictions of Asians were still, you know, not quite smoothed over. Mm, we've come a long way. We have, yeah. Yep. Uh, I want to make a comment about the first story here, Death Mask. Uh, we meet the Council yep. of Seven, which is the first time... The, the, the Council of Seven will pop up again. The Saifan is this huge organization from the Sax Romer novels, uh, an underground assassin assassination organization, or whatever you want to call it, led by Fu Manchu. But he has a Council of Seven, which is like his secret society within the Saifan. It's like the top seven guys. And every time one guy dies, he puts another guy in. So there's always seven of them. Uh, so this is a concept that we'll, that we'll see come up uh, in this book, and I don't know if it's something that's continued through the rest of the series. Do you, you've read the rest of the series, so you know, right? can't quite remember. Um, I don't remember their presence being that consistent through, but I might, memory might be failing me. Well, we'll find out together in the future then. Right. I was going to say, one thing, again, you get the depiction of the kind of opium in uh, on page 162 at the top there, kind of emphasizing that. One thing I'll say about the Saifan, though, um, in Sax Romer's novels, they're exclusively Asian, um, Indian, uh, Chinese, uh, Japanese. Yep. That In later depictions of them, it's going to include uh, white folk in there as well. So they're going to kind of move away from it simply being an aspect of the Asian terror. Yeah, it's and more that, of an international crime yeah, ring. Yeah, yeah that's, that's um, uh, Doug Mensch doing uh, work on that one, I, I imagine. Right. So I have a question for you. In the, mo- in, the, in the story called Frozen Past, Shattered Memories, the second story, what is the meaning behind the statue? Um, because there's the... I mean, I know, it's, I know that there's, um, there, there's the okay. guy that steals the statue on page 173, but why does Fu Manchu even, even care about that? All righty. So 173, the statue. Gosh, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, so the whole thing revolves around this statue, and in the end, the, sketch, the statue breaks... And I, we don't get any reason why Fu Manchu was going after it in the first place. And Fu Manchu does seem pretty happy about it at the end of it. it um, page 175, it's been a pleasing night. Yeah. Let us return to home base, pilot. And they're off. It's almost like it was uh, just another one of the games that Fu Manchu plays. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. Mm. Yeah, I have no idea. Interesting. Okay, let's finish off with Giant Size Spider-Man number two. Giant Size Spider-Man was 
kind of a kind of like an annual for uh, Marvel team up and each of the giant size Spider-Man saw Spider-Man teaming up with a different person. I think the first issue was Dracula and then this issue is, is Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. So the story's called Master Stroke, written by Len Wein, drawn by Ross Andrew. And uh, so we have a, a different feel to the story. Um, and in this one, uh, Fu Manchu tricks Shang-Chi and Spidey into thinking that each other is planning uh, to destroy a power plant. So they have to go uh, against each other and hopefully maybe one of them will die. That's what Fu Manchu is hoping for. Doesn't, doesn't work that way, of course. This is a typical, a typical plot setup for Marvel team-up. The, there's a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. The, good guy, the two good guys have to fight for a while. They realize their error and then they team up. What makes this one unique is that Len Wein really captures the the inner monologue narration of of uh, Shang Chi, and so whenever there's a a scene with him, you get the inner monologue even to the point where like the 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 narration boxes have the rounded corners, mm-hmm. and then whenever Spider Man's in the scene, you get normal narration from a third party, and uh, and it has the 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 square edged corners. Yeah, that's interesting, and um. You get the sense from the Shang-Chi ones, at least, that he's holding back. Um, so, for example, on 201, when they're fighting, and this should not be a fight. <laughs> this should be, Spidey should be able to mop up the floor with Shang-Chi. Yeah. Uh, but um, Shang-Chi does pretty well. But in his inner monologue, uh, as you're kind of pointing out in 201, he is dazed, but still resi- his resistance fills the air, an almost physical presence. I move to incapacitate him, but Spider-Man moves as well with speed I have rarely seen before. It's pretty good stuff. Yeah, it's, it definitely does, as you pointed out, does do a really good job of depicting the two characters. With Shang-Chi being much more of an internal person, as Spider-Man being almost uh, uses the comedy and the dialogue and, and the rhetoric as a way to kind of keep his opponents off balance. I also like the point here uh, when Shang-Chi mentions to Spider-Man that. Fu Manchu is his father. Sp- Spider-Man's what? Like, he says, really? I thought that guy was a fictional. What does he say here? You're putting me on, right? I mean, Fu Manchu's only a fictional character, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like Spider-Man has read the novels. He's maybe seen the movies. Didn't realize that it's based on a real person. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, I love that metatextual sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, We get a throwback to old, um, old Tack, the sumo. Right, um, yeah. He tries to face off against Spider-Man. That doesn't do, go so well for him. Yep. I like Ross Andrews' art. Are you a fan of uh, Ross Andrews? Is he, does he make your pantheon of Spidey artists? He does, yeah. It's, it has such a great classic feel. He is one of the definitive 70s Spider-Man artists, I think. Mm, yeah, for me too. Um, he keeps that physicality that Romita brings in. Yep. Uh, but doesn't go with the super skinny that you'd see with Dicto or um, McFarlane later on. Kind of like the Spider-Man. And he does really well with the storytelling. I, I like the sequence when Shang-Chi on page 193-94, where he's facing off against the, the Spider-Man thugs. Mm-hmm. And That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. There's a lot of great action. Uh, it's laid out well. You can see the flow of the action. Uh, and it's it's got a little bit of humor in there too. Like he he does a he does a good job with with putting in all of that. And even the way he depicts the martial arts is interesting. It's he's almost depicting the martial arts almost in a judo sort of fashion with a lot of clutches and a lot of right. moving off balance uh, for his characters as opposed to a striking style. 
Yeah, that's true. He does do that. I, and I wonder, I mean, everybody plays up to their own strengths. So if he was more familiar with judo, that's not a surprise. Mm. Just like, um, who, who are you saying was the boxing? Oh, Ron Wilson. Ron Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. I love, uh, uh, I love looking at the, the, the way the, uh, the character action tells a story about who they are. Totally. It's good stuff. Uh, there is a, there's also a story that was left out of this uh, giant size Spider-Man. The rest of the issues reprints. Um, I didn't bother to look up which reprints they were. Oh, yeah, an Avengers and a Hulk reprint. So this isn't the full giant size mm. issue. There's another thing about this issue um, that is going to be tied into a much more recent Avengers, the Secret Avengers that was, I think, part of the Hickman run um, from okay. the last decade. And they're going to refer back to this story as they try to, with the modern depiction of Shang-Chi not being the son any longer of Fu Manchu, but of a immortal crime boss, Asian crime boss. And this story in particular is going to be referenced in that as they try to, to update Shang-Chi. Oh, and I'm okay. sure that that's probably going to be some of the, although the speculation is that it's going to be the the, the, the Mandarin is going to be the, uh, the father. At least the title seems to indicate that of the upcoming movie. That would make but, sense to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally happy if they do that. That's yep. great. Get a proper Mandarin as opposed to Iron Man 3. Um, so yeah, so one, that's one of the things that you, if you're interested in following Shang-Chi beyond his initial run, they have moved him away from Fu Manchu being the father. Um, Which was necessary because just for the legal headache yeah. that was. Yeah. Yeah. And it can uh, update some of the um, yeah. uh, some of the unfortunate depictions as well. Right. Well, let's call it let's call it a day here. We're halfway through this book, and I think we should pick up in the next episode, uh, just so that our listeners can uh, can take a little breather and get caught up. There's a lot to unpack in these issues, and uh, in the coming issues, there's going to be a lot to unpack as well. So. Jason, this has been great as usual. I love having you on the show, and uh, what a great ride this is, Master of Kung Fu. Mm, it lends itself for a really interesting conversation, that's for sure. Yeah. We'll do these two episodes back-to-back, so I think we'll hopefully see you next week then. Fantastic. <laughs>